Hello, I'm Caitlin Akhtar and I'm the Solicitor in Charge of Indictable Appeals at Legal Aid. And hi, I'm Ruth Carty and I'm a Criminal Law Solicitor and the Summary Courts Manager at the Coffs Harbour Legal Aid Office. And today we're going to be speaking about the law on sex offences. Well, I think a good place to start to give us some context might be if we go back to the end of 2018 when significant changes were made to the existing law around sex offences. So the second reading speech for that act uh, talks about the fact that um, the changes were made in direct response to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, which was the Royal Commission that went on for about five years. And there was also um, a significant period of consultation following um, that prior to the implementation of these uh, new laws. So that's, I guess, the background um, against which the laws were changed. And in the second reading speech, uh, they specifically referred to two aims of the legislation, which were to improve the chances of successful prosecution of child sexual offences while reducing the criminalisation of children. So it's sort of interesting, I guess, in that sense that it's definitely aimed um, at children, it's got a child focus, but the changes that were made apply to all types of sexual offences. So they also made substantial changes to offences that relate to adult accused and adult complainants. Uh, and the other big change is that um, it specifically eliminated indecency as an element, um, saying that it was outdated. Um, and they have made changes to modernise the language of the offences. But the new definitions were said to reflect uh, the core of the common law meaning of indecency. So it's probably a good um, time to get stuck into the new definitions and offences, Ruth. Yeah, so um, the reforms repeal the offences of indecent assault and um, act of indecency, uh, along with their aggravated forms. and replace those old offences with new offences. So they replace the offence of act of indecency with a new offence of sexual act and they re replace the um, old indecent assault offences with a new offence of sexual touching. Um, so there's quite a number of new offences with differing maximum penalties and some standard on parole periods too. Um, I won't go into detail now about all those new offences, but if you're interested, um, you'll find a table comparing the old and new offences and also setting out the maximum penalties and standard non-parole periods on the last page of a paper that Caitlin and I wrote together, and that paper can be found on Criminal CPT. It's called Sexual Offences, uh, a New Regime. Um, so moving on to the actual differences between sexual touching, sexual act and um, indecent assault, act of indecency. So the term sexual touching is defined in the legislation as a person touching another person with any part of the body or anything else or through anything, i.e. clothing worn by either the offender or the complainant, in circumstances where a reasonable person would consider the touching to be sexual. Um, and the term sexual act is defined in the legislation as an act other than sexual touching carried out in circumstances where a person, a reasonable person, would consider the act to be sexual. So you'll see that both 
definitions have that objective element of whether a reasonable person would consider um, it to be sexual. And to help with making an assessment, uh, making that assessment, the legislation contains a non-exhaustive list of matters to be taken into account in deciding whether a reasonable person would consider that act to be sexual. So these include factors such as whether the area of the complainant that was involved was the genital, anal or breast area, or whether the act was done to obtain sexual arousal or gratification. Um, and there's also a catch-all provision whether any other aspect of the act makes it sexual. Um, there's also, in relation to those offences, a protection for medical workers, um, and that the act basically states an act carried out for genuine medical or hygienic purposes is not a sexual act or is not sexual touching. Um, so moving on to the elements of the offence, for someone to be found guilty of these, the new offence of sexual touching, the Crown has to prove that the accused sexually touched the complainant or incited the complainant to sexually touch the accused or incited a third person to sexually touch the complainant or incited the complainant to sexually touch a third person without the complainant's consent and the element that the accused knew that the complainant wasn't consenting. So there's quite a number of different ways that someone could be found guilty of the sexual touching offence and you don't actually need to physically touch the complainant yourself to be guilty of it. Mm. Hmm. And the elements of sexual act are almost identical to the elements of sexual touching. Um, the only real difference is that the word sexual touching's been replaced with the word sexual act. Um, so in addition to those offences that I've just spoken about, there's also similar offences of sexual touching and sexual act but in an aggravated form. Right, so I guess that's um, similar to under the old legislation with their aggregated forms? Yeah, that's correct. So in relation to sexual act, there's a new offence of aggravated sexual act, which is obviously more serious. It's got a higher maximum penalty mm. than the sexual act simpliciter offence. Um, and the circumstances of aggravation for that offence are either the offence was carried out in company, the complainant had serious physical disabilities or a cognitive impairment, or the complainant was under the authority of the offender. Mm. And there's essentially an identical offence, um, aggravated offence of sexual touching with the same aggravating features. There's also mm. sexual act and sexual touching offences that relate specifically to children. Um, there is an offence where the complainant's under the age of 10, uh, which is clearly very serious. Uh, and then there's offences where the complainant is aged between 10 and 16. Um, interestingly, there's also an offence of aggravated sexual act when a child is between the ages of 10 and 16. Uh, and there's no equivalent sexual touching offence for this. So this is in addition to aggravated sexual act? There's a specific... Yeah. Right. So that's right. So there's, this is a specific aggravated sexual act offence where the complainant is aged between 10 and 16. Mm. And it's a lot broader than... The, the circumstances of aggravation for this offence are broader than the aggravated sexual act offence that doesn't relate specifically to children. Right. So um, the circumstances of aggravation for that offence can be either that the offence was committed in company, that there was a deprivation of liberty before or after the offence, 
um, or that there was actual bodily harm either threatened or inflicted, that the complainant was under the authority of the accused, that the complainant had a physical disability or cognitive impairment, or, interestingly, that the accused took advantage of the complainant being under the influence of alcohol or drugs in order to commit the offence. Right. So I thought, yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting that it isn't um, duplicated with the sexual touching offence or that they thought it couldn't be adequately captured within just the general aggravated sexual act offence. Um, yeah, yeah, it is interesting as to why um, there isn't an equivalent sexual touching offence. Okay, so it seems the elements are pretty similar to the old indecent assault provisions to, to an extent. Do you think that the new offences will really make much of a difference to what people are charged or convicted of? Does it cover essentially the same ground or is there um, anything particularly new, do you think? Um, I suppose on that question I'd, I'd say one thing. Um, when you read the second reading speech for these reforms, it's clear that Parliament had the intention for sexual touching to be to have pretty much the same meaning as, as indecent assault. Mm. Um, but the thing that they've done is they've removed that element of indecency, um, and I think it's possible that they they've now inadvertently criminalised, for example, young people kissing. Mm. Um, so an example of this I was thinking of is, say, a 14-year-old accused charged with sexual touching of a child between 10 and 16 um, on the basis of kissing a 13-year-old. Mm. So I think previously um, a 14-year-old kissing a 13-year-old might not have been viewed as um, criminal because it wouldn't necessarily be considered indecent by ordinary standards mm. uh, but, but because the new offences of sexual touching or the, the new offence of sexual touching doesn't have that element that the prosecution needs to prove indecency it's arguable that a scenario like this could now actually be an offence yeah i think, um, I um, think one of our colleagues might have had a scenario just like this um and i i, I hadn't really turned my mind to it but i guess a um, under the definition that you referred to, that passionate um, kissing would be, um, you know, arguably a sexual touching. Yeah, I think it, it, it has the potential to be considered sexual touching. Mm, yeah. Um, and I don't think this was intentional. Um, I think it just might have been an, an inadvertent um, side effect of the changes. Right. So um, just finally on offences, the last offence I wanted to briefly touch on was a new offence of sexual touching of a child between the ages of 16 and 18 who's under the special care of the accused. So special care is defined in Section 73 of the Crimes Act, but it basically captures relationships between teachers and students mm. uh, and authorised carers and the young people that they're caring for. And I think with this offence it's important to note that... Um, Consent isn't a defence for an offence for an offence under that section. So even if the complainant is old enough to consent um, to other sexual acts um, and is a willing participant in that kind of act, it's still an offence under this section. Obviously, because of that um, that power imbalance in the relationship. 
right. between a teacher and a student and a, and a um, carer and someone being cared for. That's interesting that the consent mm-hmm. is sort of irrelevant to that offence. Um, and I guess that is, it's interesting to compare that with um, other uh, new provisions where consent becomes relevant where it wasn't previously. So um, in terms of the, I see the sexual touching, sexual act offences, um, they all now have brought in this element of consent, as you say, because otherwise um, there wouldn't be an offence of just sexually touching somebody. Um, they don't have a concept any longer in the language about these offences of assault. They've instead got um, a concept of doing the sexual act without a person's consent. And so all of those uh, issues of consent which might have um, previously just been confined to sexual intercourse without consent or aggravated sexual assault trials in the district court um, would now be relevant to summary hearings in the local court or the children's court and um, by the same token um, acts between people which would otherwise be consensual I see um, now wouldn't be if the complainant for example was significantly intoxicated so that um, uh, if your example of two people you know, passionately kissing with, with two adults, but one was um, extremely intoxicated, um, that might be enough to negate consent so that it's an offence. So um, I guess two drunk people could arguably be an offence. Um, and the other example that we talk about in the paper, sort of hypothetical potential example would be perhaps at a Christmas party, um, there's a a group of people, colleagues who are intoxicated and one um, makes a, a very lewd gesture that could be thought of as a, um, an act that was sexual um, towards another colleague who might look as though they were um, a willing recipient of that gesture but um, were significantly intoxicated, that that could also be caught by this offence of sexual act uh, where um, previously these kind of issues weren't really um, necessarily explored as an issue um, at, a, at a summary hearing level. So that seems like a pretty significant change as well in terms of the offences to me. Um, I think that um, that being one of the very significant changes, that is bringing in the um, consent provisions to a broader range of offences, um, probably the next really important thing to talk about in terms of um, what the changes mean is the decriminalisation of children that we talked about kind of at the beginning of the podcast. Um, So, I mean, what do you think is really relevant to be discussing in terms of the decriminalisation of children? Well, I'd probably start with the new similar age defence under Section 80AG of the Crimes Act. I think that's a really significant aspect of, of the reforms. Mm. Um, so, you know, for that new section, basically it now creates a defence to specific offences of sexual intercourse, sexual touching and sexual act, uh, where the complainant is about the age of 14 mm-hmm. and there's no more than a two-year age gap between the accused and the complainant. So, for example, two 15-year-olds who are otherwise willing participants, that kind of scenario? Yeah, that's correct. So um, as long as the complainant's over the age of 14 mm. um, 
and there's no more than two years gap, the similar age defence um, can be used. So the section states um, exactly which offences it, it relates to, but mm. essentially they're um, all the sexual offences where the complainant is aged between 10 and 16. Um, and it's, I think it, it's significant this um, this new defence because it goes such a long way to decriminalising that kind of ordinary teenage behaviour mm. between those two willing participants yeah. um, who aren't necessarily old enough to consent. Mm. Um, and speaking of consent, um, there's an interesting aspect of this new similar age defence because the lack of consent isn't an element for the offences that this similar age defence is available for due to the complainants not being above the age of consent um, and therefore unable to consent. The similar age defence is a complete defence to those offences. Um, so it's still available where the complainant is not a willing participant. Oh, I see. So it extends. Yeah. Right. So like an example of this would be a 15-year-old girl committing a sexual touching on her 14-year-old friend while her friend is asleep. Um, so if the young person in that case raised the similar age defence, she'd be likely be found not guilty of a charge of sexual touching of a child between 10 and 16. And that's because the lack of consent isn't an element to that charge. Right. Um, and she would have been able to successfully raise the similar age defence. So I've had a case with a similar example to the one I just gave. Mm. Um, it's important to note that young people in, in examples like the one I've just gave would still be guilty of sexual touching, just of the sexual touching simpliciter offence. Oh, I it see. It doesn't necessarily okay. decriminalise that kind of offending behaviour altogether because mm. um, there is still that offence that captures the criminal criminality of that young person's conduct. Okay, so if one, if the complainant's not a willing participant, there are alternative offences that they might be liable for, but not specifically those offences that have that element um, of the child between 10 and 16 that the defence covers. Yeah, that's correct. Right. Um, another, just briefly, um, another aspect of that similar age defence um, is it's important to note, I suppose, that it's a defence as opposed to an element of an offence. So it doesn't necessarily need to be relied on by the defendant um, and offences under those sections relating to um, child between 10 and 16, they can still um, be offered in negotiation by the defendant um, right. because the defendant can choose not to rely on the similar age defence. Right, because so I want to think about a scenario where you wouldn't want to rely on a defence that's open and shut, but I guess, uh, yeah, it might be useful in, in those kind of circumstances. Yeah, well, like an example is where your client's charged with a sexual intercourse of a child between um, child under 16 and, um, and you might be able to offer a sexual touching child between 10 and 16 right. instead as a lesser charge. Okay, well that's, that's interesting. Um, I can't think of many other examples where the law sort of works in that way where the um, prosecution would definitely fail um, if it proceeded for that offence but um, the defendant could nonetheless uh, agree to plead to that offence if they wanted to. Um, 
but that's a pretty interesting kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, it is an interesting one. Um, so there were some other significant parts of the reforms that assisted to decriminalise children. Uh, so another one I can think of is the reforms to the child abuse material prosecutions of children. Ah, uh, the sexting reforms. The sexting reforms, that's it. Right, yeah, because we've all, I think, um, most people who've practised in the children's court um, would likely have come across a scenario where one young person has taken um, uh, a sexually suggestive or a nude photo of themselves and sent it to somebody else and, um, you know, under the previous law they're both guilty of an offence so the person who takes the photo of themselves is guilty of um, producing child pornography, then they send it to somebody else, they're guilty of distributing child pornography um, and then the recipient is also guilty of uh, possessing the material. If they pass it on to someone else, they're also distributing and, and so on and so forth. So I know that was um, an issue that Legal Aid gave a lot of um, focus to um, in years previously, did some community legal education with young people to get them to understand that it had such serious consequences. You could end up, you know, um, on the child protection register because you'd taken a nude photo of yourself and sent it to your boyfriend, for example. Um, it's a really serious issue. So I think that um, this reform is really substantial. So basically what we're talking about is um, the provisions in sections 91G, 91H, and then there are some other subsections following 91H, which all are around the child abuse material reforms. But as an overview, um, proceedings for um, existing child abuse material offences can only be commenced against child defendants um, by or with the approval of the DPP. So they'll have, um, I guess, the, the final say over whether um, proceedings against a young person will proceed at all and, and make, a, I guess, a discretionary call about whether it's in the community's interest to proceed against um, any of the young people that might be involved in the scenario. Um, but there's also um, the reforms go um, even beyond that to um, create a defence, for example, um, for the child um, who takes a photo of themselves and they're the only person in the photo, um, then there's a defence to the charge of possessing child abuse material, um, which is really significant. And also, um, I guess, um, the reform under 91HAA, which is an exception rather than a defence, um, where the person who's in possession of the material was under 18 at the time and a reasonable person would consider that the possession of the material by the accused was acceptable, um, and then they're not guilty of the offence as well. So I guess anybody who's got um, a young person charged with uh, possessing child abuse material should really be encouraged to consider um, deeply the various you know, um, exceptions and defences um, in and around that Section 91 of the Crimes Act um, because the reforms have really gone to, I think, great lengths to try to decriminalise um, that behaviour between um, young people that um, would otherwise be the um, 
you know, creation and possession and distribution of child pornography. So that's a really significant reform as well. Um, and we know that one of the reasons that it was particularly significant was that um, uh, it, being convicted of these offences um, exposed young people to being on the child protection register or the sex offender register, um, I guess as it's colloquially known, um, for this kind of activity and it was a massive um, danger to them, I guess, in terms of um, the, the long-term consequences. So um, I guess on that note, it would be important as well to talk about the um, reforms to do with the Child Protection Register, yeah? Yeah, well, so that, that's another very significant part of the reforms. So um, the December 2018 reforms we've been speaking about they also brought in a, um, a change to the Child Protection Offenders Registration Act. Um, specifically, Section 3C was amended to create a discretion to treat child offenders as non-registrable persons. Hmm. So sentencing courts, basically what that means is sentencing courts now have a discretion uh, when a sexual offence was committed by an offender who was a child at the time of the offence to make an order declaring that that child is not a registrable person mm. um, for the purpose of the Act. Uh, so it basically enables judicial officers to consider all of the facts of the case um, in deciding whether the young person should be placed on that register. So it's creating a lot more discretion mm. um, for sentencing courts. Um, I think it, it's significant because prior to this, children were automatically um, considered registrable persons if they were sentenced for multiple uh, offences uh, and sentencing magistra magistrates and judges, they basically had no power over this and no discretion. So even when it didn't make sense to put the young person on the register, it would just happen automatically. So it just happened by force of the legislation, it wasn't even, I guess, something that magistrates or judges would turn their minds to, really, yeah? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so I think it's important when acting for young people charged with sexual offences um, to keep in mind, to keep at the forefront of your mind the um, that we should be trying to keep these young people off the register and mm. that should be one of the main goals in the case because I think usually in the children's court jurisdiction... Uh, a child being placed on the register is actually going to have a significant impact on their future and, and potentially um, much more of an impact than any penalty for the actual offence. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really important um, to not consider that uh, this is an afterthought mm. and, um, and to take it really seriously. Um, so it's not an automatic thing. So if a child is being sentenced in a children's court or um, district court for sexual offences, um, if there's more than one, they generally, is a, like the status quo is that they would be a registrable person. Mm. So defence practitioners um, should actually be asking for the order that they're not declared a registrable person and they should really uh, prepare submissions the court as to why the court shouldn't make that order. So as I said, it's not an automatic thing. Mm. Um, and if no order's made, the young person will be placed on the register. I see. So it should be raised at the time of sentencing. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, 
and so there's a few things, there's a few conditions that need to be met before the court makes that order. Um, so the conditions are that the victim was under the age of 18 at the time that the offence was committed, uh, that the young person hasn't previously been convicted of any Class 1 or Class 2 offences, uh, that no full-time imprisonment or control order was imposed, mm. And, and this is the most important one, that the court satisfied that the young person doesn't pose a risk to the lives or sexual safety of one or more children or of children generally. Hmm. Um, so in the legislation, there isn't an attempt to define whether such a finding um, as to whether they don't pose a risk to children um, should be made on the balance or beyond a reasonable doubt. Right, okay. <laughs> we don't know what the test is. So, um, and there isn't, there's also not guidance on whether the offender or the Crown has the onus. Right. Um, so it's a bit unclear at the moment, but I am aware of one district court decision. Uh, that's the decision of R and RI. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, in that decision, the judge um, found that the offender had the onus because mm. it was their application. Um, but the finding only needs to be made on the balance. Okay. So that's good to know. Yeah. Um, so, as I said, I think this is a really significant aspect of the reforms. Mm. Um, I've had a case, interestingly, where um, when the prosecution was submitting that the court shouldn't make the order and leave the child as a registrable person, uh, the prosecution submitted that the court couldn't ever be satisfied that they that the young person wouldn't re-offend and therefore they couldn't be satisfied that the young person didn't pose a risk to the lives or sexual safety of children. Well, that wouldn't give the reform much work to do then for any case. Well, that's, yeah, that's right. So um, in that case, the court found obviously that because they're not psychic, they couldn't ever really say that, that a young person, any young person, wouldn't commit an offence. Yeah. Um, but in that case, they've made a finding that that young person that they were sentencing was unlikely to re-offend. Right. Um, and that was enough to mean that the order could be made. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Um, there's only really one decision I've found on this, these changes to Section 3C of the Child Protection Offenders Registration Act, and that's that decision I spoke about um, briefly before the case of R and RI. Right, okay. Um, that's a New South Wales District Court decision of Judge Lur. Um, and he, in that case, the court found that um, in all of the circumstances and given the lack of prior offending of the young person, um, as well as the remorse that he'd shown, um, that he didn't pose a risk to the lives and sexual safety of, um, of children, of one or more children or children generally. Okay. So there's a little bit of guidance, but at the moment, just that one case. Yeah, yeah. So it's all still fairly new, I suppose. Mm. So is there any other significant parts of the reform that we should touch on, Caitlin? Uh, I think that it's probably worth mentioning even briefly the um, new warning that was inserted into 293 capital A of the Criminal Procedure Act. So that's a discretionary warning that can be given to a jury at trial. Um, which says that where a judge considers there's evidence suggesting a difference in the complainant's account, which might be relevant to their truthfulness or their reliability, that the judge um, can say a number of things to the jury about the reasons why there might be 
differences in a complainant's account and that it's for the jury to decide um, whether those differences are important. So it's pretty significant in the way that it's worded. So the warning um, has the judge informing the jury that experience shows people may not remember all the details of a sexual offence or may not describe a sexual offence in the same way each time, that trauma might affect people differently, including affecting how they recall events, uh, that it's common for there to be differences in accounts of a sexual offence, and that both truthful and untruthful accounts of a sexual offence may contain differences, um, and as I say, that it's for the jury to decide. So um, although it's a trial direction, there's at least one case um, that I found, a reported decision um, of Judge Aberdee, um, where he gave himself the direction, um, or at least um, made the point during a, a district court appeal from a local court decision that if juries were entitled to reason in that way, that there was no reason that um, he also, um, sitting on the um, appeal in the district court, um, couldn't reason in that way. So I guess that it, it really um, sits directly against the way that these trials often play out, which is that um, differences in um, the complainant's account to various people or in their um, evidence as against their complaint to police are really seized upon and submitted on as being relevant to whether the jury would accept their account. Um, if the jury were then to be given this warning, I mean, potentially that's quite a significant counterweight to the defence that you might be running at trial. Uh, there's only um, one reported case that I found where the trial's um, been, uh, the warning's been discussed, which was um, R and DLW number four, which is uh, a decision from June this year um, in the district court. Again, Judge Aberdee, um, and he noted that um, despite the fact that counsel submitted that there were inconsistencies in the complainant's account and that the judge should take that into account when assessing whether she was reliable. Um, uh, the judge ex expressed, I think potentially with some surprise, that he, um, defence counsel, didn't impress upon me any need to direct myself in accordance with that provision. Um, and so ultimately he didn't give himself that direction. Um, so I understand that um, based on um, Judge Aberdee's other decision where he was sitting on an appeal from the local court, which is Freeman and the DPP, which is another decision um, from June this year, that it might be that although it's a trial warning, that it also um, has been thought to have some relevance in summary proceedings. Um, have you had any experience of it? Uh, yeah, so in the Children's Court, I've had, um, I've had the prosecution ask for it in a number of cases, ask the magistrate to um, give himself that direction. I see. So potentially it's something with broad application. I'd be interested to hear from uh, people listening who might have had um, that warning either considered or in fact given um, just to get a sense of how widely it's being used. Um, look, I think that's probably um, about all in terms of the, the time that we have to cover the main points. I mean, what um, I would say uh, in summary is that the, the things that we've talked about, you know, we've highlighted obviously the um, things that we think um, are the most significant. So um, would you, I guess, kind of agree that the criminalisation of um, children and the discretion about the, the register are probably the, the most significant parts? Yeah, look, I, I 
I'd definitely say that. I mean, they're hugely significant, obviously, um, particularly for people practising in the children's court jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah, they might not have the broadest application, I guess, because it only applies to children, but it's it's very significant for that kind of cohort of defendants, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, I certainly agree with that. So I just wanted to add, too, that our paper on these and other issues, it's called Sexual Offences Against Adults and Children, a new regime, uh, and that paper's available on criminalcpd.net.au. Yeah, and our contact details are in the paper. So we're happy to hear from anyone who wants to, I guess, raise a scenario that's arisen under the new laws or a question about them or, you know, share some problems they might be um, encountering as a result of the new laws. Um, so, yeah, we'd be interested to, to hear from anyone who wants to kind of um, engage about those issues. Yeah, love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.